0: All right, all right, Betty's. We are going to be talking today about insulin and insulin resistance. Some of the differences between some of us who are insulin resistant and insulin sensitive. And then I want to talk about weight loss resistance as well. This is que- these are questions that I get from a whole number of different verticals and I want to synthesize them today in a way that you can see that there are there are, it is multifactorial. If you are somebody who is trying to lose weight and seem to be gaining and losing the last you know, call it 10 to 15 pounds. And you've been doing that over and over again for years and years. I want to synthesize a little bit of the information around why you may be having some trouble losing the weight and specifically not just weight, but the adipose tissue, the fat tissue that uh, you want to be shedding. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause, and mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. So let's start with insulin and insulin resistance. So there are essentially three key organs, three key insulin response organs, right? And these are going to be the liver, as you might've guessed, the muscle, and the fat. So these are the three organs that are involved in the insulin response. And when insulin is secreted, obviously that's going to be usually through the exogenous consumption of substrate, like a carbohydrate, which constituents are, you know, when you break down the carbohydrate is glucose, then glucose signals the um, insulin. Insulin signals the muscle the liver and the fat, so these insulin response organs, to take up glucose, right? And of course, in taking up the glucose, it is going to allow the cell to be um, to use the glucose for cellular respiration in the production of energy. Insulin also, is going to signal the liver to stop making glucose or gluconeogenesis, which is one of the many special tasks that the liver can do. So an impaired ability to do any of these things, right? So whether it's the liver, uh, the muscle, the fat to take up glucose, or for the liver to stop making glucose, if any of those things are impaired in the presence of insulin, we are going to be insulin resistant. And this is important because there are rough estimates out there that roughly every other person in North America, and when I say the Americas, I'm I'm, I'm really referring to more westernized um, countries. So we typically will talk about this in the context of the U.S., but Canada and the U.S., Western Europe, um, every other person in the US, Canada, Western Europe, uh, is insulin resistant. And for the most part, it goes unrecognized because it is largely an asymptomatic process. And it is not necessarily recognizable by a doctor simply doing a fasting glucose blood draw. And we talked about this with Dr. Casey Means. Definitely go back and listen to, you know, what a glucose monitor. We're going to talk about CGMs today, but get, you know, she is the co-founder of a glucose monitoring company, and she talks about the uh, what fasting glucose and your response uh, to foods via glucose um, can afford you. And there are some important differences. In terms of the way that an insulin sensitive and an insulin resistant individual respond to that exogenous um, substrate. So there's a couple of studies that I want to just overview for you and give you highlight for you uh, what the what the findings were. Uh, And I can put these links in the show notes for you just so if you, uh, for those of you that want to learn a little bit more, um, there was one in one study in particular, uh, Peterson et al., 2007, uh, they basically took two groups, right? So um, insulin sensitive, insulin resistant, they, they, there were these basically healthy, lean, young individuals, right? Fed them a high carbohydrate milkshake. And what they found was that both groups, both the insulin sensitive and the insulin insensitive participants maintained similar glucose levels, maintained similar glucose levels. However, the insulin resistant participants had higher insulin levels. Okay. So this is really important because what this implies is that the insulin resistant individual And they are remaining you know, and I'm using air quotes here, healthy uh, by producing more insulin to keep that gl- those blood glucose levels in check. And this is why it can be completely asymptomatic. Like your doctor might say, hey, like don't eat for eight hours. Tomorrow morning, come into the lab, we'll do a blood draw and let's take a look at your rest, uh, your fasting uh, glucose levels. What you also need to do is you also need to pair that with a fasting insulin levels, because your fasting glucose levels could be in that euglycemic range. Uh, now typically, you know, depending on where you are, lab ranges, uh, they vary, but generally the standard, uh, you know, euglycemic range is anywhere from like, call it 82 or 75 to a hundred milligrams per deciliter. I personally think a hundred is too high. Um, But you can still have this euglycemic range, but your pancreas, man, she's just like whopping out (laughs) like the beta cells of the pancreas are just like dumping out copious amounts of insulin in order to maintain that range. So that's really important. The other thing that I think is is interesting is that uh, another uh study uh, studies, I should say, by Gerald Schulman, again I'll drop these in the um uh, in the show notes for you, um discovered a series of a series of studies that while insulin sensitive and insulin resistant participants were able to store similar amounts of Um, So if they had, you know, they had carbohydrates and they were looking at what happened to those, what happened to the glucose, right? They were able to store similar amounts of glycogen in the liver, but the insulin resistant participants unable to store as much glycogen in the muscle, so that's really interesting, right? So we know just by weight, the liver is gonna can store somewhere around two thousand calories, depending on the size of the individual. Uh, let's call it about a day's worth of um, of glycogen in the liver, and of course we know that just by sheer volume, right? The muscles are. By sheer mass, much larger than the liver, and of course, by default, will be able to store much more glycogen. so what the um what these studies are revealing is that the ability to synthesize glycogen in the muscle, there's something that impairs that what causes it? I mean, the next question is, okay, so we understand that these insulin-resistant individuals have some sort of impairment in synthesizing glycogen in the muscle. And it turns out that these individuals have almost a 50% impairment in glycogen synthesis. And so these people are essentially, these insulin-resistant individuals are essentially resistant because they can't get glucose into glycogen in the muscle, right? A couple other interesting things around individuals who are insulin resistant. So when we look at the insulin levels, when we compare the plasma insulin levels in insulin resistant individuals, The insulin levels are about threefold, so three X, three times higher um, in the portal circulation or in the liver, meaning that the liver is being exposed to very high concentrations of insulin compared to the rest of the body, right? And We also know that insulin resistant um, individuals tend to store more fat and synthesize more fat from the ingested glucose versus insulin sensitive individuals. And you may have heard the term de novo lipogenesis. This is something that we've talked about on the pod before. This is another special Uh, job that the liver is able to do. So the liver can make glucose via gluconeogenesis when she needs to. She can also make fat, de novo lipogenesis. And what we see is these insulin resistant individuals have more of this de novo lipogenesis, this internal synthesizing of fat than individuals who are not. And of course, DNL becomes very important in the context of insulin resistance because it can contribute to NAFLD or non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Now, many of you really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Robert Lustig. He calls NAFLD human foie gras, which is just a a horribly accurate term. Very uh, well-received podcast. Highly recommend you go back and check that out. And we also talk in that podcast about how fructose, and I've done a couple of geeky magics on fructose at this point, fructose fuels this de novo lipogenesis, this DNL as well. So the, the meal content that you have, like the foods that you're eating, uh, also can drive, um, de novo lipogenesis. So a couple of takeaway points here, okay? So what we see in insulin-resistant individuals are a couple of differences. So we see that the blood glucose between insulin-sensitive and, and resistant individuals is about the same, right? Nothing really statistically significant. But what we do see is an impairment of the insulin resistant individual's muscle to take that glucose and turn it into glycogen. Okay. We also see an increase in de novo lipogenesis, and we see more insulin in the portal circulation. So, couple of things that we want to take from this. So one, we want to be thinking about for these individuals that are walking around, have no idea that they are developing this sort of pre-diabetic, pre-metabolic, you know, insulin resistant picture. I mean, first I'll say that the good news is, is from these studies, um, exercise obviously. So working the muscle, uh, has been shown to reverse, or at least like significantly improve the muscle's ability to synthesize glycogen in as little as one session, right? So this is very much pointing to something that is absolutely curable without drugs. And it just takes, it takes some effort, right? There needs to be some education of the individual. We need to have, we need to design plans for these individuals that are um, appropriate for their lifestyle that doesn't overwhelm them and that has, you know, we have a higher propensity for these individuals to follow these exercises over time. Like, if you give someone who's not really used to weight training and, like, all right, we're going to do this, we're going to, we got to go. And we, you know, we're going to do this five times a week weight training regimen, we're going to do body splits and then this, we're going to do leg day and then upper body. Blah, blah. And you can you, kind of this like bro, like super dihydrotestosteronization, like <laughs> this DHT approach um, to these individuals, you're going to fail, right? We want to think about, and this is like what I think the hallmark of a really great coach is, is meeting your patient or meeting your client where they're at. If they've never freaking lifted weights, don't, please don't give them a five day plan. Like, please just give them like, can you just get 5,000 steps in a day, please? Like, and you start from there, right? And then maybe you add in once a week, they do some type of full body circuit style. And then from there, you split that up into two. And then from there, you know, you double down and now you have three, et cetera, et cetera. So really think about, you know, if you are a practitioner and a lot of doctors listen uh, to this podcast, think about meeting your patients where they are, not where you are. It is so easy for us, you know, because we tend to really get into this and like, I, you know, I love to lift the weights as well. And I'm like, I'm always looking for, I'm like, I got to work on my human flag and my pistol squad and my this and my that. We forget how far we've Come and how many years we've actually been doing it. I've been lifting weights for, you know, 20 years at this point. It's like, that was a long time ago when I first started lifting weights. And I have, you know, it's hard for me to remember what it's like and how overwhelming it is, right? And if you're, you know, as we see gyms opening up now, people are coming back and, you know, maybe we're a little bit heavier than we were, like, it's intimidating. So just think about how can we make something so easy that it is uh, super easy for our, um, for our clients to implement. So that's, that's one thing, exercise important, right? One of the contributors to weight loss resistance. And this kind of brings me to weight loss resistance as well. I hear this term weight loss resistance sort of thrown around a lot. It's not an official diagnosis. It's not like a CD, there's no code for it, but it it really is describing, you know, a multifactorial, there are many potential reasons why someone continues to gain and lose the same 10 pounds, you know, over and over again. And for those of you who are wanting to lose weight, you may find it incredibly hard and incredibly frustrating, right? So there's a couple of strategies that I want to talk to you about today. That's going to, we'll review them, uh, review some of the science as well. And hopefully this is going to help you move the needle, right? It's going to help you stick to your guns, right? And get the results that you want. And truthfully, a lot of this has to do with hormone optimization. So we're going to talk about this in the context of metabolic hormones. So like the insulin we've been touching on, um, and we're going to talk about, um, sex steroidal hormones like estrogens and, uh, testosterone, progesterones, et cetera. And this really goes beyond the calories in calories out model. Now there is, I am, this kind of radical <laughs> person who I like, I like information from everywhere. And I do believe that there is, you know, caloric deficits do need to happen in order for you to lose weight. But if your hormones, especially for a woman, if your hormones are out of whack, you're in perimenopause, you don't know what's happening. You're kind of a moving target, you're estrogen dominant, then you're low on your estrogen, then you're low on your T, et cetera, et cetera. It can be just honestly a gong show. So we do have to marry the calories in calories out. Um, model because that is the that caloric deficit is what is going to facilitate weight loss, but we have to marry that with hormonal optimization, in particular for women. Now, men are not excluded from this, but with women, you know, I like to I say this with love, like we're extra, right? We we're just we're like the guac. We are extra, you know. We cost more. We got more. We've got more cycles than our than our male counterparts do. We have a reproductive cycle that changes our hormonal constitution every single day of the, uh, of the month when we're in our reproductive years. And then of course we have this change into menopause where we see a radical change in our concentrations of estrogens, uh, progesterones and testosterone. And so we really want to be thinking about how we can fortify our, those hormones once we no longer have this reproductive cycle. Okay. So that's my little spiel. It's not just seco, It's not just calories in calories out. It's also hormones. So The first place I want to start um, is around metabolic health, right? So considering now, you know, we've talked a little bit about this insulin resistant and we have these like, you know, kind of apparently, you know, you could be a young, lean, healthy individual, but you have no idea that your pancreas um, is working over time. Most people are unaware, right, of their glucose levels and of course their insulin levels. And there are many of us, unfortunately, that are walking around with fatty liver accumulation and this pre-diabetic, pre-metabolic syndrome uh, presentation. So the first tool here is going to be quantification, right? We want to quantify um, what our fasting glucose levels are, how we respond to meals, what happens to our glucose, are we kicked into ketosis, and or and ideally, and, um, we also want to know what our insulin levels are. And of course, you know, today, you know, being blessed to live in this era of technology, there are so many wearables, right? There's so much tech that you can, um, you know, really you have your pickings and your choosings, uh, of different types of wearables that can give you the, you know, the technological readout, um, and monitoring that you're looking for. So a couple of recommendations I would make on the, on the get-go would be if you want to understand your glucose pattern, get yourself a CGM, get yourself a a continuous glucose monitor. As I mentioned, we just had um, Dr. Casey on from Levels. I have no profi- uh, professional affiliation with this company, um, the advisory board, um, you know, based on the, the advisory board, the medical advisory board that they have amalgamated, I feel very comfortable recommending, uh, this product. Most of the advisory board has actually been on this podcast. Um, there's also the, uh, there's also, there's many, it's not just, not just levels, um, that offer CGM. There's many others. I've had the, um, uh, the Abbott, uh, one in the past, um, but you know, full transparency, I found the probe to be like uncomfortable. And the insertion thing was like kind of slow. Um, (laughs) so, um, but I'm not trying to discourage you from it, but there's, um, there's Dexcom. There's, there's many, there's many different companies that, um, offer continuous glucose monitoring for you. And for the most part, you can get them. Um, they will, they are not covered by insurance, unfortunately, but they will be out of pocket, but you don't necessarily need a prescription for them. Now, if that's, that seems too complicated and or too expensive, cause you do have to replace that probe every two weeks or so, um, you might consider something less invasive. You might consider, um, analyzing your breath. So we've talked about, or one of the show's sponsors is the Lumen device talked about it here on the pod before. Um, they, and I have, you know, there's a link in the show notes, um, you know, you'll have, if you click the link and you decide to buy it, you have $25 off of the device. Um, But I would say that um, a device like the Lumen or any type of breath analyzer test is going to, it won't necessarily be able to give you a readout on specifically what your glucose response is, but you can really get quite specific in terms of does certain meals, uh, you know, kick you out of ketosis if, if ketosis is the goal, uh, what does, what is the macronutrient composition of your diet doing to your energy levels, right? Uh, do you, would you be better off fueling before a workout or doing it fasted? You know, so the devices like the Lumen can give you some intel in there, um, as well. So that would be, um, that would be my step one, right? If there's some sort of monitoring of your response to foods, either through a CGM or a breath device where you can begin to hone in your, you know, your response to foods and to, and to situations, actually. One of the things I'll say that CGM has really taught me is that, man, my stress levels, uh, you know, my and therefore my blood glucose, they go through the roof when I'm when I'm when I'm doing something important. So for example. In the times where I've, um, back in the olden days when I would, when there were events and I would go to, and I would speak on stages and speak in front of audiences. If I had a CGM on and I went to go check my blood glucose, holy Hannah banana, my glucose was like through the roof. And it also, even just with the podcast, um, when I've had, um, uh, when I've, ha- when I've been monitoring myself, if I'm being interviewed, like if I'm on someone else's podcast, or if I'm interviewing for the podcast, right? Like my glucose is just going bananas. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it, right? There's a high, you know, these are activities that are really high on the attention and alertness scale, right? So it's very brain heavy, Uh, you know, brain being one of the biggest, you know, glucose gobblers, um, in the body, uh, Takes up about twenty-five percent of our daily, um, uh, daily calories is allotted to the brain, um, but it's also even though I'm not in physical danger, right? Like my heart might be beating faster, my blood pressure might go up, and that's coming more from motivation, right? I want to do a good job. I want to sound, uh, you know, I want to formulate good, you know, good questions. Um, I want to sound intelligent and relay my message clearly and concisely so that people. Can can understand what I'm trying to talk about so my blood glucose goes through the roof whenever I am on an interview or being um, interviewed which is um, which is kind of interesting and a little little piece of intel about me um, so enjoy <laughs> um, The other thing to consider in the context of um, when we're thinking about weight loss resistance is of course, is our hormones, both for women who are in their reproductive years, including perimenopause, and for my menopausal women as well. So for my reproductive, my women in the reproductive years, we want to be striving for a balance and harmony between progesterone and estrogen, right? Uh, in the luteal phase of the, of our, so the second half of the cycle. And for menopausal women, we want to be fortifying the adrenal glands, right? Because those are going to be now the primary producers of your testosterone and your estrogens. Um, your adipocytes will also be producing estrogens estrogens as well. And we want to, if your adrenals have been taxed, you know, your whole life, you've had this chronic stress, um, then your adrenals are not going to do so well for you in that transition to menopause and then post menopause as well. So what does this all mean? Okay. So let's, let's break this down a little bit. Um, in your reproductive years, right? We want to, as I mentioned, we want to optimize progesterone to estrogen ratios, progesterone naturally declines at about age 35 or so for most women and estrogen as I mentioned can run dominant right so in that luteal phase in the set after ovulation estrogen can run dominant in early phases of perimenopause okay and you don't even need to be in perimenopause I was estrogen dominant for God for decades um, before I finally sorted my hormones out and um, and wrote and wrote my book Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinkelementtcom forward slash Dr. Estima, that's D-R-I-N-K, com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A, and you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. But some of the symptoms to sort of clue you in to potential, uh, signs of estrogen dominance are going to be, uh, you'll get a lot of clues actually from your bleed week. So you'll see things like, uh, a lot of large blood clots. So in the Betty body, in the book, I talk about, you know, if they're a size of a dime or something, you know, maybe a nickel, that's okay. But size of a quarter or bigger, those are big blood clots. So that's too much. Uh, you might also notice heavy bleeding, right? That was my kind of, that was the sign for me. Like I was always bringing pants to clinic because I knew the days that I got my period, you know, if I got, you know, if I was sitting down for a long period of time, like I was going to have to, um, I was going to have to change my pants, heavy bleeding, heavy periods, um, irregular periods as well. Right. Uh, carrying excess weight into the lower, um, so into the lower tummy, into the thighs, into the, into the, um, butt, as the British say, um, uh, what do they say? They call it abs, bums, and tums. I remember I was living in London once, um, for a summer and I went to, um, an extra, a gym and that was one of the classes it was like abs, bums, and tums. I thought that was really cute. Okay. Okay. So other, other estrogen dominant symptoms would be, um, things like fibroids, fibrocystic breasts, so like lumpy breasts, endometriosis, adenomyosis as well. And of course, if you have no idea what those are, you know, some of the other like the heavy bleeding, like the bleeding issues are going to clue you in. You may also notice a lot of sleep disturbances leading up to your bleed week and then during and then mood swings as well. And this is all, this is sort of like the sister to low progesterone, right? So estrogen dominance, those are some of the symptoms with low progesterone. It's very much premenstrual, the premenstrual symptoms. So you may notice like headaches and migraines premenstrually, like leading up to your bleed week. You may even notice spotting. So if you are, you're not quite sure if your period has started, there's a little bit of spotting in your underwear your cycles are getting shorter. And in particular, it's the second half of your cycle that's shortening. So it's the luteal phase that's shortening. And then your libido, if you're noticing your libido, um, tanking as well. So it's basically like the PMS stuff. You may also notice like swollen breasts and sleep dysregulation in the same way that you might with estrogen, um, dominance. And so this is really important because there's a lot of things that we can do to help amplify and to help bring harmony here. The f- there are many, many, many ways. I want to focus on the liver. And I know that you might be thinking like, what the bleep does the liver have to do with estrogen? But um, it really does have to do with the second phase of, de- so the liver um, detoxes. And when I say detox, I don't mean like you know, detoxes and like cayenne pepper cleanses and any of that garbage. I mean actual detoxification. There's an actual process called detoxification. So there's several steps uh, of detox. There's hydroxylation, there's conjugation, and then there's and then there's elimination. So basically when we talk about detoxification, it's your liver taking something, whether it's a you know toxin or, you know, in this case estrogen, right? Excess hormones uh, and preparing them to be eliminated. Now, conjugation. This is the second phase of of liver detox. The second phase of of the detoxification can be amplified and upregulated by the foods that contain sulforaphane. So this is like you've heard me talk about the Brassica genus family before. This is a great family of vegetables. These. um you know, we have compounds in the brassica family that have indoles, right? So diindole methane, very famous supplement, right? Dim uh, for women. So we have indoles, we have sulforaphanes, we have isothiocyanates and important, a couple of important pieces here. So I've talked about estrogen dominance on previous Geeky Magics. What I want to highlight is when we are consuming sulforaphanes, there are a lot of different pathways that are inhibited. So we have the NF-kappa B inflammatory pathway, which is inhibited. We reduce DNA damage. We reduce breast cancer risk. We reduce mortality from heart disease. Um, importantly, we, we increase benzene excretion. So this is something that I don't believe I've talked about a, a lot. And I think this is really important. It's something that I've turned my attention to in, uh, in recent months. And benzene is basically, uh, comes from things like gasoline, cigarette smoke. Um, it's like one of the top 20, uh, chemicals for production volume in the U S uh, it's used to make things like plastics, resins, um, uh, synthetic fibers, um, And it's used to also make things like detergents and drugs, uh, pesticides as well. Our makeup and our perfume and our clothing, right? Synthetic clothing uh, all contain uh, benzene. So if you've ever gone to a gas station and kind of smelled that gas, like, I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, I love that smell so much, but it's so bad for you. There's something about the smell of gas that I'm like really peculiar, like it's a very peculiar quirk. I'm like, I'd like, well, inhale deeper. I don't know. I, I I, don't know. Somebody please tell me what's wrong with me. But basically you can be exposed from outdoor air from places like gas stations, right? Where I'm like, <laughs> I'm like inhaling the benzene. Um, you can also get it from like tobacco smoke and stuff as well. Like the, the ex like the exhausts at the back of the car, like the, I, I guess they're called exhaust, motor vehicle exhaust pipes or whatever. But what I wanted to highlight, uh, is not my ineptitude around car parts is, um, it's actually that indoor air generally contains benzene levels that are higher than those of outdoor air higher, even if you have a new build, right? So I don't want you to think that this is just for like old buildings that are lined with arsenic. Like this is um, the benzene in indoor air comes from like glues and paint and furniture wax and all these like detergents and all these kinds of things that we see um, in homes. And the reason why I'm highlighting benzene and why this Brassica genus family is so great at helping eliminate them because is essentially benzene works by causing, um, cells to like, not, not to work properly. Right. So for example, in bone marrow, um, it will cause the bone marrow not to produce enough red blood cells, right? If you don't have enough red blood cells, you get anemia. Right, it can also damage the immune system by changing blood levels of antibodies and causing the loss of white blood cells. Right, so white blood cells, these are you know part of our immune system. We have our T, we have our killer cells in there. We have all of these uh, important constituents that are that are our white blood cells. And so benzene can basically kibosh both of those. It can cause irregular menstrual periods. Right, so your periods can become irregular, and you could be blaming it. You're like frick, my progesterone's low. And it's like, actually it's benzene in your home, right? It can also decrease the size of your ovaries. Now I always talk about big ovary energy. If you've ever, you know, read my books so or you've ever seen any Instagram posts, or I talk about B, you know, BOE, <laughs> the big ovary energy on the podcast as well. I don't want itty bitty to, I don't want itty bitty ovaries. I want big, I want big ovaries, right? Cause I want that big ovary um, energy. So in addition to consuming the Brassica genus, these green cruciferous vegetables, you know, other things that you can do are getting yourself some plants. And specifically, these are like, this is such an easy solution. You don't even have to eat broccoli. You can just get yourself a peace lily. Right? You can get yourself a fern or a snake plant. I forget the, um, the, the proper name of a snake plant. Sometimes it's called mother's tongue. Um, but it's basically these like, they look like snakes. They're like, they're tall kind of spiky pointy leaves. Um, and these three in these, these three in particular, the, the fern, the peace lily, the snake plant, they have been shown to remove toxins like benzene from the air, as well as other crap. Like you get the formaldehyde and all those other toxicants that we can't Perceive like we can't smell, but we are bringing into our bodies all the time. And of course, you know, we've all been indoors much more in the past 18 months than I think, you know, we ever have in human history. So it's important for you to be considering how you can be um, cleaning out your indoor air. And I would say if you can as well, like open your windows, like 10 minutes a day, cost you nothing, turn off the AC, just open the windows and, um, and let some of that fresh air do its thing. Except if you're in my area where my, the birds start chirping, like I used to leave my windows open all night long. Cause that's my favorite thing. And we moved to a new home, um, I don't know, maybe almost a year ago now. And the birds be chirping, like they're like chirping, getting their like birdie, you know, like doing the little birdie, um, like morning dance parties. And they're like socializing, having their little cup of coffee, like chirping, chirping, chirping to the point where they would wake me up and they chirp exactly at four o'clock every morning. So my windows don't stay open anymore, unfortunately, but I do get them open during the day. So I'd highly recommend that you do that as well. All right. Another reason for weight loss resistance is that you may have an altered sympathetic tone and when I say sympathetic, this is not an emotional affliction. Like it can, this can be kind of confusing when we talk about our sympathetic nervous system, because it, one thinks of being an empathetic, caring individual. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the sympathetic nervous system that has to do, this is a branch of the autonomic system that's involved in um, responding to threat right? So in the brain, we have the amygdala, which is just Latin for almond because it looks like an almond. Uh, this amygdala is involved in basically de- detecting, um, threat, right. And responding to threat. So fear, aggression, right. And these involve other hormones, right? Hormones like adrenaline and epinephrine, which essentially when I say those two, those are like homologs of each other. They're the same hormone when I say adrenaline and epinephrine, um, cortisol, norepinephrine, you know, these are all going to quicken your heartbeat. They're going to increase your blood pressure. Uh, they're going to activate clotting factors in the blood. They're going to narrow your focus. Um, you know, dilate your pupils, conserve glucose for peripheral tissue, which is important, like muscle. Right. And, you know, at this point, I know that you've heard of the stress response. I know you've heard of fight or flight. We can all relate to it. Right. Modern life. We have things like, you know, having to break quickly on the road or receiving an upsetting email or, um, you know, something that, you know, stresses you out. Um, The thing is, is that we have these, um, what Dr. Daniel Amen calls ants in our brain, right? Um, These automatic negative thoughts that are happening all the time, right? We are unaware that they're happening and they can be activating our stress response hundreds, if not thousands of times throughout the day. And if that wasn't bad enough, of course, In addition to some of these physiological changes, like the blood pressure, the blood clotting, the pupils and all that kind of stuff, we're also going to see a change in energy production, right? So typically, um, the way that we produce energy is in the... Uh, is in the mitochondria the well i should say we can produce energy in a couple of places the mitochondria is the most abundant way to do so and this is um through a process called oxidative phosphorylation or oxphos for the cool cats out there and um when we are chronically stressed right when we're chronically um activating this stress system, we can move from oxfos to aerobic glycolysis, which is about a 15x decrease change in our energetic capacity, in our energetic production, I should say. And so if you're chronically inflamed, right, and I use inflammation and stress sort of interchangeably, they're the same thing, Your your mitochondria are not producing as efficiently as they can be right? And this is, this is going to affect, this is going to affect your weight, your ability to lose weight. If you don't have energy, what's the likelihood that you're going to go for a run or go for a walk or lift those weights or make better choices? Because if you're just bagged from energy, you want quick energy, which tends to be the processed foods, the sugary, you know, it's the sugary slope into, um, into human foie gras, as Dr. Lustig might say. And of course, you know, just to like put the nails in the coffin, this is going to affect our circadian biology, right? Our sleep and our wake cycles, your hunger signals. If you are, if you have no energy, your hunger signals are going to go up right? And you're just, if you're, if you're exhausted, you're just going to eat more crap, right? And, and the acronym for crap is like carbonated, um, drinks. Oh, I have to, I forget the, I forget the acronym. I'll put it in the show notes, but there's an, like processed foods is the P I forget the R and the A, but I'll, I'll I'll put the, I'll look them up and I'll look them in the show notes, but you're just, you're just going to eat crap and it doesn't have to be the carbonated drinks or the processed foods, but you're going to be going for quick sugar, I want to talk a little bit about disrupted and dysregulated circadian cycles. Um, I definitely want to do a a bigger nerd sermon on this at at a different time, but I do want to talk briefly about this in the context of weight loss resistance, because... And I realize you might be thinking like, what the heck does this have to do with weight loss? Like what, why does light and dark have anything to do with weight loss? But there are a lot of, there are a lot of effects, uh, both direct and indirect from, um, poor sleep wake cycles. So as I mentioned, we'll get into some of the specifics, uh, at at a later geeky magic, but I'll tell you that one of the first things that I counsel my, um, private clients to do is when they wake up is to within 30 minutes or so, get up, you know, wash your face, brush your teeth, make your espresso, whatever, and go outside without your sunglasses. Okay. And the reason why is that if you were to just kind of hang out in your home, right? If you had like a sunny room, let's say uh, in your, in your home, it's actually very different than the light intensity that you will get if you were outside. And when I say difference, I mean, log orders of difference, right? So, and I've, and I've done this before where I've measured the light reading. So I have a, a one room in my home is very, very, I thought it was very sunny. Like all my plants are there and it had a reading of about 1500 lux. Okay. Um, and I went outside, like literally, you know, two feet away from where those windows were. Uh, went outside, measured the outside light, and my phone registered 65,000 lux. This was at seven in the morning. So this is, you know, 45, this is like a 45X difference, right? So in the morning, the light from the sun. The reason why this is so important is in the morning, the light from the sun is more blue, right? There's a couple other colors, but the blue wavelength um, is the one that I want to focus on. Highly stimulating to the retina, okay? Um, And, you know, by, of course, through the retina, it is also stimulating to a master circadian center in the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN. And when this blue light hits the back of the retina, it's going to ramp up the SCN activity. And your SCN is basically going to send a signal to the body it's time to wake up, girl, right? It's time for your metabolism to start. It's time for respiration, cellular respiration um, to start. And it's also going to help with sleep actually like paradoxically getting really bright light. You might not ever think that those two are related, but getting really bright light in the morning is going to facilitate a better quality and quantity of sleep later that evening. So, okay. So when I, when we do a podcast like this, when we talk about a broad topic, like hormones and weight loss resistance, I often, um, I, I often struggle, truthfully, um, like, do I make a session? Like, do I make a podcast where it's like, you feel like you're drinking from a fire hose, right? Like there's so much information coming at you. Um, or do I give you some really juicy ones, right? To implement in your life. And I'm going to err on the ladder because I think that it's important, you know, just in the way that I was giving you the example before, like we forget what it's like as professionals, right? What it's like for a patient, what it's like to be a beginner. I think it's important. It's much better for me to give you some actionable, like simple things that you can do this week. Like that's the whole kind of philosophy and through line of the podcast. What can I do tomorrow? What can I do today to get better tomorrow, right? Let me give you a couple of little things uh, that are little but super juicy and super, super powerful, okay? So in terms of tools, one of the things, one of the easiest things, we talked about it already, is just get outside every morning, right? Get some exposure, take your sunglasses off. Um, And usually you wanna try to get outside when the sun is still low in the sky. So you're not, you know, hopefully you're not waking up at 11 uh, in the morning. Hopefully you're waking up, you know, somewhere around, call it anywhere from five to seven, right? So the, the sun is still relatively low um, in the sky. I usually say somewhere around 30 minutes after rising. Like I said, it gives you enough time to sort of wash your face, make a nice espresso. Um, and the no sunglasses is important here, okay? And the reason for that is the retina is insensitive, relatively in the morning, insensitive to light. So you really need to overcome that inertia, that insensitivity with bright outdoor light. And of course, when you wear sunglasses, you're going to be attenuating the amount of light that gets into the back of the retina. So, you know, if you are, you might want to, you know, maybe in, in that 30 minutes that you wake up, like just splash on some SPF. I mean, this, you know, it's, but it's really like that blue light that you're after to drive the retinol stimulation to the suprachiasmatic um, nucleus. And that's relatively free. There's no cost to that. That's available to everybody. Everybody can go outside. Um, The other thing that we, we mentioned is about the brassica family, right? And the role that they play in amping up liver conjugation. I also mentioned house plants, right? A way to improve oxygenation. And a lot of these plants actually release a lot of their oxygen at night. So just like even just another little pro planting tip, like I have a snake plant, um, in my bedroom because it will take a lot of the CO2, um, and release a lot of its oxygen at night. So you're getting an oxygen rich environment in your bedroom overnight. This is like one of the, you know, m- most well in my, in my home anyway, most well-loved plants. Everyone has a snake plant. Um, in their home because they're also relatively low maintenance. Like it's, they're really hard to kill. Um, and so that's, that's really great. So get some plants. Um, the fern, as I mentioned, the snake plant I think looks really beautiful and the peace lily is just gorgeous as well, especially if you can, if you can get it to flower. Because I'm asked about hormone questions like the ones we've covered, uh, weight loss resistance, like a lot of weight loss resistance types of questions, one of the things that I've decided to do. So I've given you some really great tools in this podcast, but I'm also putting together a class um, really for you to join if, if you feel so called, you know, called to do so, and you're going to have access to it forever. So starting next month, um, I'm going to be hosting a four week course. It's like a master course on metabolic hormones. We're going to talk about some of the ones that we talked about today, insulin, we're going to talk about cortisol. We're going to talk about the sex, uh, steroid hormones, thyroid hormones, and which we actually didn't get a chance to talk to you about today is the thyroid, which is also the seat of our metabolism. And I want to give you basically the science, right? I want to talk about the science around these things so you understand how they work, what's affected, how they're affected, um, and the tools and the strategies really to help you balance up, um, your hormones so that you just, you know, you stop gaining and losing those last freaking 10 pounds are so annoying, right? Um, you're also, you'll also have the opportunity of course, um, with classes like this, um, for you to ask your own questions, right? So you can ask your questions and I can give you guidance Um, on those questions and and, uh, direction on them. And one of the things that I really value is while I know lots and lots, sometimes I don't have the answer off the top of my head uh, or I may not even know the answer. And if I don't, then I will either find the answer for you or guide you to a person um, who would be more specialized than I, who can help you on your journey or a resource that can better help you so this class is going to be live, right? We're going to, they're going to be all recorded as well. Um, so if you're, you know, you're not in the time zone, like I'm in, I'm in Eastern time. So if, it, if you're not in Eastern or you like you're driving home at that time or you're sleeping or what have you, you'll still have access to everything. You'll still have opportunities to ask your questions that I'll see. Um, and we're calling, we're calling this class Betty Hormones, right? And so this is one of the five pillars, um, that I've outlined to living whole as a woman. Uh, we've done other programs around, um, fitness. We have like Betty booty and Betty body, and we have all these other, all these other bees. We're taking a break from the Betty and the bee. We're doing Betty Hormones, um, next month. And if you're interested in finding out more about the class, um, the link will be in the show notes, but you can head over to triple W www.hellobetty.club forward slash Betty dash hormones. So that's wwwh dot c-l-u-b forward slash b-e-t-t-y dash h-o-r-m-o-n-e-s and you can sign up there. Uh, The investment for you is 97, uh, which is basically a fraction of the cost of most tests anyway. And uh, you're going to leave with an education, right? You're going to leave with some tools. You're going to leave with strategies for optimizing, you know, your testosterone,s your estrogens, your progesterones, your cortisol, adrenal hormones, and your thyroid hormones as well. So I hope to see you there. And even if I don't, I hope that you have found this Geeky Magic informative and that you have some tools that you can start doing tomorrow to help with that weight loss resistance. We'll see you Friday for Betty Bites. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you.